Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. Let me invite you to open a Bible to John chapter 16. This morning we're going to be reading verses 16 through the end of the chapter, verse 33, and that's what we'll be studying together. So John 16, beginning in verse 16. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus speaking. He says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep, and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, 
Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we look to you now to give every single heart that is gathered this morning in this place an abiding peace through the words of Jesus. We ask it for his glory, for our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. I've always found it curious that one of the more famous Advent texts frames the coming of Christ in terms of making peace between God and humanity, which you will find in a passage like Luke chapter 2. But I find it curious because later on, I believe it's in Luke chapter 13, Jesus says, He did not come to bring peace, but rather a sword, and if not reconciliation, division. By His Word, Jesus splits the world. On the one side... People of the world are born again, they believe the gospel, they align with Jesus, they're made part of the family of God, so that in a real dynamic sense, they're no longer of this world, though they still live in this world. In their case, they have been reconciled to God, and they've been reconciled to one another. There's real peace. It's the most wonderful thing. But then there's the other side of it. There are those who, up to this hour, are still abiding in unbelief. They're still in the death grip of nature. They hear the word, but as they hear the word, they then quickly lay it aside. They're they're beckoned, they're called to come to Jesus Christ, but cannot as yet see at all why they should come and cast their souls upon Him. In reality, the Bible is not afraid at all to say they really do hate Christ. They'd rather be saved from the Savior than from their sins. And so, we have these two sides. Those who are of the world and those who used to be of the world but aren't any longer of the world. And so, while Jesus did bring peace, He also coincidentally created a division. And with that division, the certainty of sorrows for some, for Christians for the church, as we live in this world. In Luke 13, he goes so far as to say deliverance or redemption will have a splintering effect even within families. As one believes and others in that family do not believe. And we've all experienced, I think, something of that. If not in our families, maybe we've experienced that splintering effect of Christ and His Word in our friendships Maybe our workspaces, our classrooms, maybe even in our churches. You just think Judas, 
Judas was part of the original disciples, and he splintered off because of Jesus from the rest of the group. But the idea then is just what Jesus says in our verse 33. It's that as we exist for Jesus in this world, we're going to have our share of troubles. He's tried, remember, to calm them about his departure, right? John 14, for the most part, some of 15. Now, he's trying to calm their troubles about the fact that not only is he departing, but while he's departing, what are they doing? They're remaining. They're staying in the world. And Jesus presumes, you see, that in this world, his people are going to be a display of him to the world, and that we shouldn't expect them to be treated any differently than he was. And for those crosses, we're going to need to know his peace. So, let's come to our text and consider first Christ's counsel for his confused disciples. In verses 16 through 19, Jesus tells them something they just don't get, which John emphasizes by repetition. Okay? Jesus says, the thing, verse 16... They take the saying up with each other because they don't get it, verse 17. John then tells us again that they did not get it, verse 18. And then knowing that they didn't get it, Jesus raises the matter again to provide an answer, to provide clarity for them, verse 19. So Jesus' disciples, they don't understand him. It's almost their hallmark that they don't get what Jesus says, that they live in gospel confusion, which is opposed to their spiritual peace. Uh, Dear ones, listen. We need to understand that gospel doctrine has a divine place in our determination to follow Jesus in this world. And not just doctrine, but clarity. Clarity on gospel doctrine as he's meaning to give them peace in him in a context of persecution on account of him, Jesus has a lot to say about this thing we call truth. Here, however vaguely, he gives them a doctrine. He alludes, probably, most probably, to his death and his resurrection. A little while, verse 16, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, wonderfully, and you will see me. Give them his peace. It seems like he's at least alluding to gospel doctrine. He gives them biblical truth. As if continuing steadfastly with Jesus in this world demands that we have steadfast convictions on the basis of his words. For Christian peace in a troubling world, doctrinal confusion simply will not do. Now, you might say, well, Brian... This is all prior to the resurrection, the ascension, the outpouring of the spirit of truth. Shouldn't we expect such confusion for his disciples at this time? And is that not now alleviated for us? Yes and no. It's true that after the resurrection, they understand and believe the truth more solidly than they do right now. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus promised in this post-resurrection age we call of the church. So, yes, they understand better. We see that in the book of Acts and moving on to the rest of the New Testament. But also, no. 
It's also true, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 13, writing in the same church age, (laughs) that we will all continue to see dimly as in a mirror and need Jesus constantly to be breaking things down for us as if we were little children. And especially so, especially so, when we've been made to hurt for the sake of Christ. Trial has a way of exposing our depths, has a way of exposing what of Christ has made its way from our brains down into the fabric of our very souls. Like items that maybe are lying dormant at the bottom of the ocean until a great storm kicks them up, draws them up to the surface. Let me ask you, what what comes out of you, Christian, when trials come? What discoveries are made? What depositories of truth? What depth of conviction? What hope, what peace in Christ comes out? It is often symptomatic of suffering that we think and speak worse than we really do believe. Crosses can have a tendency to confuse us. Opposition and discouragement can fill the mind in a way that sadly buries much of what Christ has put in our souls. We can lose our gospel bearings. And with it, we lose our peace. Now, these disciples here, they're not careless about this. They're not careless about what Jesus has said. I want us to see they aren't the sort to pay no mind to Jesus' words. They care about sorting them out. But I also want us to see that their first inclination is to take their confusion to the equally confused instead of to the one who taught them. They take counsel among themselves. While the Word incarnate, the Word made flesh, is right there to give them counsel. Isn't that how you and I can tend to be? Listen, you know that at this church we're never going to disparage but only encourage theology in community. One of the great gifts... I want you to hear one of the great gifts Christ has given us for living the Christian life the way that He wants us to live it is each other. Only let us not neglect the book. Let us not neglect the Word of Christ. The greatest encouragers that I have in my life are not those who lead with their own thoughts and sentiments. It's those who text or write or call or sit me down face to face and give me some line of Scripture. Some truth of Christ. Hey Brian, turn to Psalm 89. I want you to see this. Sometimes those folks say nothing at all. They just go chapter and verse. But it ministers to my soul in the way that only the Word of Christ can. I want you to note this too, verse 19, that while we may lay the Word aside, the Word, Christ, 
will never let us go aside too long in our own counsel before he interrupts our relative ignorance to give us light and in that light to give us his peace. You see there? They did not ask of Jesus. Jesus, what are you talking about? But Jesus, knowing their questions, which he knows yours, knowing their questions, he initiates clarification. Jesus is not too high to accommodate himself to us as spiritual dunces. Jesus is most gracious, however slow we might be spiritually. No question I want you to hear is beneath the Lord to answer it. He loves to give counsel to His confused so that in Him you may have heartening peace. And it's not to be had just in that He counsels but also in what he counsels. This brings us to his surety for the sorrowing, starting in verse 20. Alluding, I think, again to his approaching death and the resurrection to follow, uh, he tells them this. If you look there, truly, truly, by the way, that's the language of divine assurance. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament, but the world will rejoice You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus is saying that his death is not what it will seem to be to either his disciples or the world in this moment. The tables, he says, are going to be turned. The joy of the world in the death of its Savior will not yield the joy that they and we also at one time thought that it would. The resurrection of Jesus, proving the cross to be the victory of God, will prove the world's kind of deliverance abortive. I don't want anything to do with the gospel. Get, Get Jesus away from me. Crucify Him and leave me alone. Leave me to myself. That is the straightest path, just want you to know, to eternal misery. Nothing good comes from removing Christ from the equation of your life. He's the solution to our greatest problem, which is our sins against God. So if if you're not a Christian this morning, Let me just urge you right now to listen with some increased intensity. Jesus came to be the solution to your sin problem with God. But if you won't have Him, if you won't turn from your sins and trust in Him, not only will the problem, that problem of your sins, never get solved, but Jesus will eventually become a problem for you. Take no solace in what you think is a comfortable, however Christless, situation. Jesus lives 
There is a judgment, and the tables are going to be turned. Which also applies to his disciples, as we sorrow in this world. These disciples here, he says, will sorrow because of what's done to Christ, and because they'll know their part in what's done to Him, and because they really do love Him. (laughs) And because they will yet abandon Him, and so on. They really will have sorrow, but, he says what? Their sorrow will be transformed, changed, turned into joy. And if you're partial to illustrations, which I know some of you are, and I never give them, so this is a real treat for you. Jesus gives an illustration in verse 21. I love when he supplies me with illustrations for your sake. He likens his death and their situation to the birthing of a child into the world. Uh, When a woman goes into labor, I don't have to tell some of you, and for Caroline's sake, I'll spare her. Actually, I won't. There's a good bit of pain in childbearing. In fact, for some, first item on the agenda is eliminating the pain altogether. But as they didn't have epidurals in Jesus' day, I don't think, The anguish of birthing was perpetual and predominant until they got knocked unconscious. No, I'm just kidding. Until a human being was successfully born into this world and placed in the care of the child's mother. In that moment, something really, really strange happens. Your body is still in the condition for anguish. Only now, suddenly, it's numbed by a joy that has filled the heart. It's wild. There has been a successful delivery. You have the gift for which you labored. So, also, Jesus says, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. You will know that my death was not an abortive labor. That it really did achieve your deliverance. And can we not also let that flood our souls right now? What joy do we think these disciples discovered, beloved, when after the cross and after the burial and after their sins and their doubts and their cowardly insecurities, Jesus met them still face to face alive from the dead? What light, what elation do you think filled their souls? What peace? In Christ, the baby known as redemption had been successfully delivered. That's not a child as Job's children that can be lost. That's not even a child as the Son of God became, whom the Father gave and did not spare precisely that you and I might be given an everlasting salvation. One that never goes away, can never be lost. You see what Jesus says in the verse 22? 
He says, and no one will take your joy from you. Why not? Because what Christ has done for us, that also cannot be taken away from us. What's done is done. And Christ's work for us is done. It's sufficient. You remember what he says on the cross right before he breathes his last? What is it? It is all together now. It is, there we go, that's beautiful. Yeah, it is finished. Which means, as one put it, quote, if you are in Christ, you are as eternally invincible as he is. Whatsoever he is freed from, sin, death, hell, all these kinds of things, temptations, so too are you. It can no more hurt you than it can hurt him now in heaven. In order for you then to ever fall short of his loving embrace, both now and into eternity, Christ himself would have to be pulled down out of heaven and put back in the grave, which will never happen. You're that safe. Close quote. And so also then is your joy. It's a joy with an invincible, irreversible anchor in heaven. Let the storms come. Let them rage. Let them do their worst. It may take and break and undo all kinds of things in your life. You might lose your job. It may take your pay, your rep, your swag, your breath even. But it will never take away the joy of your salvation. It will never take away what Jesus has done for you. Whatever sorrows come, that is a surety that stands to give you peace in Christ. And, and how much more that these men here would go on to die the most gruesome deaths for Him because indeed they did see Jesus alive from the dead. <laughs> they saw Him. And in that sight, they had it set in their souls. The baby is delivered. The gospel is true. We are, in fact, sinners who are saved and reconciled to God, and we shall never be shaken. And how better to act unshakable than to devote ourselves to the language of children, which we as Christians call prayer. Might it be that we have so little of Christ's peace in this world because we have so little of Christian prayer in our lives and our life together? It's notable if you go to the book of Acts, what you'll find the early church doing under the threat of persecution. I'll tell you what you won't find them doing. You won't find them boarding up their windows you certainly won't find them either desiring to be or being less obviously Christian. You will find them praying. You will find them gathering to pray. Sovereign Lord, in light of everything your word says, 
Please look upon their threats, the world's threats, and grant us boldness to go forward in this world, hazarding all for Jesus, and so on. And it was granted, and so they did. That's what you'll find. During the Scottish Reformation, there was a guy named John Knox who found it his duty in standing for the truth of God's Word to stand opposite the reign of a gal named Bloody Mary not the drinks, an actual person, okay? Mary, Queen of Scots. And because she, he, would, he would stand against her, she aimed a lot of her wrath at John Knox. And still, he had like great awakening kind of success in ministry. So that, it's reported, she once said, quote, more than all the assembled armies of Europe I fear the prayers of John Knox. <laughs> oh, my word. And it begs the question. It begs the question. Are you and I, are we ferociously prayerful in the eyes of those who would hate us? Are we known as a people of prayer? And of success in prayer? Prayer that puts the world on notice. The gospel will advance, notwithstanding your efforts against it. Or, I might ask us, have we taken our exalted Jesus at his word? Here's what I mean. Hopefully you've noticed, but if anything, if anything has dominated this Olivet Discourse, John 13, 14, 15, 16, into his prayer in John 17, it's been Jesus' sustained invitations, even commands to what? Pray with great expectations. Church, his departure from the world was not to take some perpetual sabbatical. Jesus isn't chilling in heaven. It was an exaltation to sovereign, almighty intercession by which He almost dares us to ask His heavenly help. Some aspect of John 17, which we're not going to get to until February, is to show us in the world what He's doing for us all the time now that He's in heaven. That His being out of sight actually means we are still ever on His heart. Always. But, as trials have a tendency to shake our confidence in this, to make us feel alone and unheard by God, Jesus moves here to give some props for the praying. So if you look, middle of verse 23, again, He gives this doubly, this double truly, and off He goes to assure us of many anchors within the veil like his own confidence that he will be exalted to the mercy seat. It's a prop to prayer, isn't it? To know that Jesus isn't dead, but very much alive. Why else would we pray? <laughs> Here, with the cross nearby, Jesus is confident that the cross will not be his end, but instead a way 
of paving an avenue of eternal access to God for His people to come freely and boldly to pray. Through Jesus, you and I, we've been made a priesthood that exists under the perpetual smile of God. A people who, on the basis of what Jesus has done for us, can pray expectantly. In fact, with that in mind, I want us to see that Jesus commands us, into verse 24, to ask. Commands us to ask. Beloved, Jesus displays no worry at all, worry at all about what we might call unanswered prayer. His concern seems rather to be that we pray at all with a right sense of His person and His heart. He's not charging us to ask because He's a most uncharitable person who at any rate is a poor pauper who can't give us anything. But is that how we think of Him? No. You and I might have those reservations and limitations. And Satan would assuredly love to have us believe those things about God. But Jesus commands us to ask, why? Because He's the King of glory who loves to give good gifts to His people. Right? Right? <laughs> he does not commandeer our asking because really, He has a hankering to disappoint and let us down. But because He wants us to know we have his most gracious attention and care. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which I am overjoyed to exercise in, through, and for you. That's a prop to the praying. You notice the promise that he puts on it there. End of verse 24. Ask and what? You will receive. So let's not be deceived here. The heart and will of Christ is to be glorified, our living mediator, by giving receipts. But here's the thing, giving receipts upon our requests. The issue is always, are we asking? And not only for His glory, but see it again. He does all this, He'll give us these things, because He wants our joy to be full. We said it some time ago, but it bears repeating, Jesus is perpetually pursuant of our joy in Him. And apparently a vital part of that is our experience of answered prayer. Now think about that. Just think about that. If Jesus wants us to be joyful, and our joy is filled up by the experience of success in prayer. Not just in praying, but in success in prayer. Should we not expect, you and I, that our prayers will meet with good success? Jesus is giving us His devotion to our joy in Him as a prop for the praying. But there's still another. Alongside His confidence, His heart, His promise, our joy, He adds one more thing. He adds the Father's love. The Father's love. 
just in case, just in case, on occasion, we fall prey to thinking, well, I feel good about the heart of Christ. You know, you know the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. But what if the Father doesn't share the same heart? What if His desires are different than Christ's desires? What then? And so in verses 25 to 28, Jesus speaks to dispel that idea at once and for all time. This is where the doctrine of the Trinity becomes really practical, doesn't it? We ought to know at this point that what we see and what we hear of Jesus, we're seeing and hearing of the Father. The Son perfectly reveals, reflects the Father. To witness Jesus' supports for prayer is to witness the Father's own solicitations to prayer. Ask, ask, ask. That's not just Jesus, that's the Father. And you will receive. And so in this, we see the very heart of God. If you come down with me to verse 26, you'll see Jesus speak straightforwardly about it. In essence, He wants to assure us that His going to the Father is not to go and have to like twist His arm to our benefit. He's not having to force the Father, oh, Father, please be amenable to their requests. And Jesus is not like, well, I would do this, or well, I would do that, but what can I say? What can I do? The Father, He's just less inclined than I am to do you good. He's just less inclined than I am to meet your needs. He just doesn't really love you like I do. No. <laughs> what does Jesus say in verse 27? Only the greatest assurance one could ever give or have. I don't have to act upon the Father to make Him love you because for the Father Himself loves you. Which... For all of you praying Phillips out there, you should already know. Why do you think you love and believe in me in the first place if it isn't because the Father loved you? What do you think you've witnessed in witnessing me but the love of the Father also? Who do you think it was that sent me into the world for you? And who do you think not only sent me but refused to spare me just so that you not only may be spared, but know that He is not in the least degree stingy. That His love and His generosity is as big as Christ crucified. That's the heart of the Father. And will He not give you all you need? Go to Romans 8. Both for time and for eternity, He gave me. He gave Christ. Jesus is assuring them, verse 28, that His going to the Father indicates no change in the love that sent Him into the world. The love of the Father Himself loves you as has been revealed in Christ, 
everything in God is in unfathomable grace, eternally amiable towards you. Believe that. Let it, like all these props for the praying, build up in you amid whatever the Christian troubles may be, a heartening peace in Christ. There is His counsel for the confused. There is His surety for the sorrowing. There is His props for the praying. Last thing, there is His triumph for the trembling. It's another common feature of His disciples to overstate their faith. <laughs> to stay, uh, you know, to, to say true things, I think, that while sweet on their lips are yet unripe in their life. In a word... We are, sometimes seems, terminally prone to exaggerating the strength of our own grip upon Jesus. You see verse 29, they're now all ecstatic. Oh, they love when Jesus talks plainly to them. Okay? They're all ecstatic about it. Finally, they say, we've seen the light. And we know, verse 30, that you know all and are, therefore, unquestionable. And thus, indeed, you have truly come from God. And you would think, with that kind of statement of faith, they'd surely be men who are now ready to tackle the world for Jesus. Alas, Jesus knows something that we have to know. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. My, how we often confess way better than we're ready to conduct ourselves in the world. Jesus is gracious. Praise God. Jesus is gracious. If you look back up at verse 27, you're going to find Jesus affirming the validity of their love and their faith in Him. Where there is any faith at all, Jesus knows it, acknowledges it, and affirms it. But Jesus, equally gracious will also always seek to be what? Developing that faith. Growing that faith. Maturing that faith. And the fact of the matter here is that, as he says in verse 32, their confession of faith under trial will prove surface level. It's not fully mature. It's not illegitimate. It's just underdeveloped and weak. Uh, J.C. Ryle, he says... They are like, quote, young recruits who had yet to learn that it's one thing to know the soldier's drill and wear the uniform, but quite another to be steadfast in the day of battle. Quite another thing to be steadfast when the bullets are flying. What about you and me? Where are we in that development? It is easy to play big and bold for Jesus with a friendly. But what about under threat? Verbalized, exercised, or what have you, of a spiritual enemy. Honestly, I shared the gospel with an enemy acquaintance the other day, and at times thought I was <laughs> going to need dentures afterwards. My teeth were chattering so much because I was... Trembling with fear in the moment of sharing the gospel with this person. 
churches with these here. The world isn't going to let us resemble Jesus to it without presenting a cross to us. In that moment, what is your practice? Is it to stand with Jesus or to scatter from Him? Is it to draw all the closer to Jesus or take leave of Him? Is it to run home and hide or is it to persist? Whatever pains may come. If you're thinking just now, oh, I, I, you know, I hear this, but I, I will not be moved. I will not be moved from Jesus ever. You sound a lot like Peter. And you may not have gotten the point here. These men, despite their faith, scattered and left Jesus to undergo the worst trial ever conceived without the least support. And the support he had, end of verse 32, my Father is with me, would also eventually forsake him at the cross for our sake. The world will always prove too much where Christ is not enough. Or when we think we're strong enough. Let me assure you, as Jesus assures these here, we are not strong enough to stand with Jesus. But Jesus is strong enough to hold us fast. Let me ask you, when David walked up to Goliath, what do you think that trembling congregation of Israel thought? Well, we kind of know. There's some dialogue in those chapters, right? He has got no chance. He's so little. <laughs> Look at that little boy out there. And there's Goliath. He's so big. And yet, what do you think they thought when Goliath fell and David had gained the victory? Just so, however big the world presents itself to be to us, however it threatens us from day after day, our trembling should slough off in view of Christ crucified and raised from the dead. Okay? He has faced the giant. He went out alone, as it were. And he came back with its head. He does not promise us an easy life. You see that in verse 33. In this world, he makes a promise. You will have tribulation. But, take heart. I have overcome the world. He declares our victory in Him. I think we, we frequently tremble because we so infrequently take heart in His triumph. Whatever the world may do to us because of Him, it cannot overcome us because of Him. He has taken the world's mightiest blow. And what did it lead to? Victory. He got punched and it died. What then shall you and I fear if we're in Him? Knowing it only certifies our salvation. This is why we're more than conquerors. Have you ever thought about that? This is why we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We may be treated as imposters, Paul says. And yet we know, we know, we know we are true. 
we may be treated as unknown, and yet we know that we are well known by God. We may be put to the dying, but behold what? We live. We may be sorrowful, yet in our sorrows, we have reason always to be rejoicing. We may be made to be poor, yet at the same time, we're making many rich. We may be stripped of everything. We may have nothing, and yet at the same time, we have everything God could ever give. Because we're Christ's. Well, all this, if you look again at verse 33, is that the Christian heart may abide in the peace of Christ. Friend, if you're unbelieving this morning, do you have that peace? It's in Jesus. You can have it. You only need to turn from your sins and trust in the one that God sent into the world to save you from them. In overcoming the world by his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus holds out to you all the time this offer of heavenly peace. Peace with God himself. Won't you take it now? We pray you will. Beloved, the point of the passage is your peace in Jesus. In this world, we will have Christian troubles, but when confused in those troubles, we have His counsel. When sorrowful in them, we have His surety. When praying amid them, we have His props for the praying. When trembling, guess what? We have His triumph. So, so long as we're here, let's take heart and press forward with a peace that confounds the world, even as it preaches the victory of heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, we do love you. We thank you so much for how you've loved us. Please grant to our hearts, each one here, that sense, that reality of abiding peace, the peace that we have only in Jesus. Help us to have our minds, our hearts, our souls stayed upon Him. We do that. You have promised to keep us in perfect peace all the time. May you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.